<laughs> Just doing a smile. No, that's a proper smile. Yeah. <laughs> okay, who are we? Okay, yeah. Let's go up on the top again. Alright, who are we? Who are we? Who are we? We are Holy Spirit empowered. Servants like, like Jesus. Jesus. We are. We are. We are the hospitable family of Jesus. We are. We are strategic missionaries for Jesus. We are disciples devoted to Jesus. We are helping people find and follow Jesus. We, we are, are. We, we are, are City, City Gates. We are City Gates. Oh my God, you like nailed it! Memory kicked in. <laughs> We're heading into a brand new section of the Bible. We've been in this uh, series covering basically every single book of. Uh, the Old Testament, showing how the whole thing is basically one big story or fits into one big story uh, that connects directly to Jesus, uh, who is the, the reason that we show up to do these sorts of things. Um, and so uh, that's probably uh, the best introduction that I feel like we could have to this section. But I want to read something right before I get into uh, sort of the main theme of Isaiah that I'm going to focus on uh, today. Uh, this is um, Eugene Peterson. He uh, basically created a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, which is pretty popular, um, su super helpful in, in a lot of ways in terms of shedding some light on uh, how the Bible talks and communicates. And he says this about Isaiah. Listen closely. He says, For Isaiah, words are watercolors and melodies and chisels to make truth and beauty and goodness. Or, as the case may be, hammers and swords and scalpels to unmake sin and guilt and rebellion. Isaiah does not merely convey information. He creates visions, delivers revelation, arouses belief. He's a poet in the most fundamental sense, a maker, making God present in that presence urgent. Isaiah is the supreme poet-prophet to come out of the Hebrew people. Isaiah is a large presence in the lives of the people who live by faith in God, who submit themselves to being shaped by the word of God and are on the lookout for the holy. The holy. The characteristic name for God in Isaiah is the holy. As you reach, read this large and comprehensive gathering of messages that were preached to the ancient people of Israel, we find ourselves immersed in both the presence and the action of the holy. And the more hours we spend pondering the words of Isaiah, the more the word holy changes in our understanding. If holy was ever a pious, pastel-tinted word in our vocabularies, the Isaiah preaching quickly turns it into something blazing. Holiness is the most attractive quality, the most intense experience we ever get of sheer life. Authentic, first-hand living, not life looked at and enjoyed from a distance. We find ourselves in on the operations of God himself, not talking about them or reading about them. Holiness is a furnace that transforms the men and women who enter it. Holy, holy, holy is not needlepoint. It is the banner of a revolution, the revolution. The book of Isaiah is expansive, dealing with virtually everything that is involved in being a people of God on this planet Earth. The impressive art of Isaiah involves taking the stuff of our ordinary and often disappointing human experience and showing us how it is the very stuff that God uses to create and save 
and give hope. As this vast panorama opens up before us, it turns out that nothing is unusable by God. He uses everything and everybody as material for his work, which is the remaking of the mess we have made of our lives. That's Eugene Peterson's intro to the book of Isaiah, which I think is really good. Um, I am not going to preach the entire book of Isaiah today. Um, that is way too much, <laughs> as I found uh, to be the case painfully, obviously, as I was prepping for the last few weeks. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a crazy book. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to focus on one theme, and I'm going to trace that theme pretty much all the way through the book. And I think that it, it sort of fits at the, at the heart of sort of how Isaiah sees the world, how he sees God himself, and how he sees the human condition and how they get solved. Um, so I want to open uh, with a question. Uh, have you um, ever, uh, actually, maybe to tell a story rather. I, I, if you know me, I'm, I'm really into board games. I really enjoy them. Uh, it's a fun thing that I like to do. Uh, Brian knows this about me. He does not share my love of board <laughs> games. Um, that's okay. You don't have to, but I will have all the fun. So, um, but I, I bought a, uh, or got a board game as a, as a present, uh, I think for Christmas. And I was really excited to play it and wanted to share it with uh, my buddy Joel. Um, the problem is, though, is I was like, hey, dude, let me, let, we should play this game. And he looked at it, he's like, well, can I see it? And I was like, yeah, here you go. I showed it to him. And he goes, I can't play this game. I was like, well, why? He's like, dude, I, I'm colorblind. He's like, I, I won't be able to see things oh. properly. I actually won't be able to play the game. You'll have a massive advantage for me, and it won't be fun. Um, Dang it, that, that sucks, because I was really excited to play this game with you. Um, but I think that actually, right there, the, the problem with colorblindness, right, is that you, you actually can't tell the difference between colors in the way that you need to. There's a problem with being able to distinguish between one thing and another. Um, and we, my thing has gotten a lot shorter all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> the... The thing is, is that, that, that example, it, it, it shows what happens when we can't do something fun, like playing a game or something. But this also becomes a problem, for instance, if you want to go hiking. Say you're supposed to follow the, the blue arrows or the red arrows. And so you can't tell what the difference is between the red and the yellow ones. And all of a sudden, you find yourself lost really, really quickly. Um, and we, we experience this in other ways, too. I don't know if you've ever driven in a fog or really, really heavy rain. And it's really hard to tell the difference between the road and the horizon and where everything is. Um, or maybe you've, uh, you've ever had the hilarious experience of being in a grocery store and um, you hear, mommy, mommy, or daddy, daddy, and you turn around and there's a kid that's just bumped into you and it's not your kid. and <laughs> They just thought you looked like somebody else from behind. And um, the, the point is, is that being able to tell the difference between important things is really, really important. Um, and I would actually say that in some ways, um, this, is, this is really what Isaiah sees as the problem. Um, I'm going to call that problem the blur. When you can't tell the difference between something really important and something else that, that's also maybe not as important or also very important. And this comes up um, particularly in our faith lives all the time. I don't know if you've ever sort of thought about what happens when we can't see the difference between something like Christianity and lots of other religions. Um, there's lots of people who basically say there isn't really a whole lot of difference at the end of the day. Um, or what, do you, what do you do when you, you, you sort of walk into your faith life, you're, you're trusting God, you're sort of doing the things that you know to do, 
um, to follow Jesus, and yet you look around at the people around you and their lives seem to be going maybe even better than yours, and you're not sure why. Um, you're like, so what actually, what difference does knowing God actually make in my life? And is, is Christianity actually all that different from all these other ideologies or religions or things that I could really put my trust in? Um, or is it just my version of what everybody else has and I'm just not having a good time? See, for Isaiah, he, he, he sees this problem of the blur, of people, the people of Israel have actually stopped being able to tell the difference, the fundamental difference between who God is, who the living, breathing, um, holy God of Israel is, and what the rest of the nations around them, what their gods are like. And that, that actually worked, has worked itself out into um, their life. And, and it looks, if we, if we just go right to chapter 1 of Isaiah, Isaiah opens this way. He opens and prophesies in this way. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Iniquity is just a, it's a, it's an old word that means twistedness. Um, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken Yahweh, they've despised the Holy One of Israel, and they're utterly estranged. And he, he basically... Isaiah sees this as so, so much of a problem that he actually ends up uh, calling the, uh, the, the people that he's talking to. He says in verse 10, he's like, Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. If you're, if you're familiar with the biblical story thus far, there's, Sodom is a really significant um, character uh, as a city almost. If you go back to Genesis, there's this crazy story um, uh, where the, the one of the early, early parents of Israel, is a guy named Abraham, uh, he basically ends up praying for God to spare a city that has basically devolved into such a terrible state that these people are actually ready to rape um, men who come in as guests. Uh, it's, it's, and the whole town comes out to do this. It's, it's, it's this horrific situation. And, and is, Isaiah says that, you're, that there's such a lack of difference in the clarity between the way you follow Yahweh and the nations around you that you're, you're actually no better than Sodom. And so the question sort of becomes, how did Israel get there? Um, and if you jump over to uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 5, um, you sort of get the answer. Or, you, you, or starting around verse 6, you get the answer. As he says to this, he says, You've rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Yeah, thank you. Um, there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And so there's this problem. Israel essentially has this, essentially two, two problems, two fundamental problems. They, they have basically lost the difference between Yahweh 
and all these other gods. And so they do all these horrible, unjust things. Their, their um, justice system has devolved into basically a big bribery ring. Um, there, there's all sorts of things like that going on. There's incredible cor- corruption, even though, uh, if you flip back really quick uh, to verse 1, they, they have this really, they're really good at worship services. Um, it says that they, uh, God says this in verse 11. He says, what is, to me, what is it to me, your multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He says, your new moon, verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I won't listen. Essentially, what, what's happened is that Israel has this injustice problem. They have this idolatry problem. And, and so they have, again, as I've, basically, God says in chapter 2, verse 11, um, he says, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Essentially, he says, I'm gonna get, it's going to get to the point where your society is devolved so badly into injustice and idolatry that I'm going to actually have to wreck the whole thing. And that's essentially um, the first message of Isaiah. The way that God's actually going to show the distinction between him and the other gods is that he's actually going to make all of Israel's plans, their whole expectations about how their society is going to run well, fail. And if you think about it, that actually, it sounds really strange because it's like, okay, really? Like, is that, is that the right way to do that? But, but if you think about it from another angle, it actually makes a lot of sense. If, if, God, if, you're, if we're expecting God to operate a certain way, that's actually not true at all. And it leads to all sorts of abuse of other people. And it leads to actually all sorts of um, treating other things, other gods, like God himself. And then somebody comes and says, hey, look, why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. What, what in the world is going on? If that happens long enough and people don't listen, what's God to do? Right? Does he let, does he let the injustice, does he let the idolatry, and, and the fact that all of a sudden to all of the other people around, it doesn't look like there's any difference between Yahweh's people and the other people in the world. So how is he going to make a distinction? He has to justify his name. He has to vindicate his name. He has to say that when people hear Yahweh and they think of all of these people who do horrible things in his name, he actually has to change his reputation. And the way he's going to change his reputation is by actually making them fail. So, they, the, so it's like, well, the way that you worship Yahweh didn't work. It didn't, it didn't actually create the outcome that you expected it to. And so God, essentially what happens is God says throughout the rest of Isaiah, he, he, Isaiah prophesies that Assyria, this massive, intense power from the north, um, in modern, from basically in modern-day Iraq, um, they are going to rise up, and they are going to basically take over everything north of Israel, and they're going to invade the land of Judah. And uh, the first first king that we really meet um, in in sort of the story is this guy named Ahaz. Ahaz is the father of a guy named Hezekiah, who we're going to meet a little bit later. And Isaiah goes to Ahaz. He says. Look, he's like, I know you're really worried about some of the different big powers, big political powers that are coming to get you. He's like, if you just trust the Lord, 
If you just ask him for a sign, he'll pick whatever sign you want. It could be the thing that's like the hardest thing to do in the world, and he'll, he'll show it to you so you know you can trust him. And Ahaz is like, oh, no, I'm, I'm not going to test the Lord. It's like, thanks, but no thanks. I can handle this on my own. And so Isaiah's like, don't, don't give me any of your false piety. And in uh, chapter 7, uh, he says, he says, or, uh, yeah, chapter 7, he says, um, says, Hear then, O house of David, verse 13, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And then in verse uh, uh, 8, or chapter 8, he says that, um, in verse 7, he says, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against you, uh, against you the waters of the river. And that's a, just, uh, he's a code name for the, the people who live on the other side of the Euphrates River, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will find the breadth, will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So basically, you're going you're gonna to get to the point where you're up to your neck in problems. And the Assyrians are right at your gates. So I'm going to skip over the next, like, 30 chapters of Isaiah, and we're going to get to that point and look at the, sort of, the, 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 cru- the crooks of the matter. Um, especially gets to the point where, yeah, that's exactly what happens. If you, re- if you go back, you jo- go jump to 2 Kings. Um, Ahaz has had a son. There's a couple of, there's a, several years have gone by. Ahaz's son, he's, he's now king. His name's Hezekiah. And um, Hezekiah is a pretty good guy. He decides to not do what his dad has been doing, which has been worshiping all sorts of idols. At one point, Ahaz actually builds an altar and a temple to match the one in Assyria because he thinks that if he worships the Assyrian gods, then he'll actually, he'll be able to fight them. It gets that bad. Um, And Hezekiah decides to try to reverse some of that. But when the Assyrians invade, Hezekiah, his first move is not to fall in his face and say, God, we have no idea what to do. We're totally outnumbered and outmatched. We need you to show up. He tries to buy the king of Syria off. So what he does to do that, he literally strips all of the gold out of his own house. He takes all of the gold out of the temple, God's temple, and he tries to buy the king of Syria off. And he's like, thanks for the money. I'm still coming for you. And so he, he just keeps going. And it gets to the point where uh, they are right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it's a massive army. Like we're talking... Um, probably around 200,000 fighting men, 185,000. And then that's not including the baggage train. So now you include all of the logistics people, the cooks, everybody who carries all of the stuff. Um, it's a massive army. Um, we actually have uh, historical evidence, tons of historical evidence for this. I, was, I lived in London when I was about 19, and uh, I got to go visit the British Museum. And in the British Museum, there, you can actually see reliefs that uh, are from the ancient city of Nineveh. And on these reliefs are actually pictures of the siege of a, a, a Jewish, a Jehite um, from the tribe of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, their city called Lachish. And you, you can literally see the Assyrian siege works. It's all there. There's walls of these reliefs. And it's literally, this is what exactly the book of Isaiah is dealing with. So it gets to that point, and, and uh, Sennacherib, he's the king of Syria, he sends one of his generals, he's called the Rabshakeh, um, say that three times fast, um, and he, he basically shows up in front of the walls, and he says this, he says, um, say to Hezekiah, 
Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. This is uh, Isaiah 36, uh, verse 4. It says, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy in powerful war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? And then I'm going to skip down to, to verse 13. The Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. And then he says this, um, in uh, verse 18, he says, Hezekiah misled you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations, here's the blur, has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath in Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was do not answer him. And so this is, this is Hezekiah's response. He calls Isaiah, chapter 37, verse 3. He says, thus, he says, he says you need to go tell Isaiah this. Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth. He's like, I've been trying to do all of these things to try to get the country in gear. And now I'm at the point where it's like a Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings scenario. Like the massive army is at the gates and they're going to crush us. He says, it may be that Yahweh your God will hear the words of this general whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that Yahweh your God has heard. And therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And Isaiah gives him this really encouraging prophecy, but Hezekiah still goes up. He goes up to the temple. He receives, because he's received this, another letter from the Assyrians as well. And he's read it, and, he, he, and it's basically this whole challenge. He's like, all these gods, they, they didn't save the countries that trusted in them, so why is your God any different? So he takes this letter, he goes up, he goes to the temple, he gets on his knees, and he spreads it out in front of God. And Hezekiah prayed to Yahweh, O Yahweh of armies, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, <laughs> you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, bend down to listen to us, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. But they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, and therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Yahweh. And so that's sort of the challenge. What is God actually going to do? Is he going to save these people by his mercy, or is he going to let the whole thing just end there? Because something else I didn't mention, which is also really important to know, is Isaiah has actually lived through watching the northern kingdom of Israel 
get sent into exile. That's kind of the time and period that, that he's at. So he's, he's not the first prophet that we actually have in the Bible of the written prophets. Um, there's been other prophets that have already told Israel that God's not happy with the inconsistency in their lives. And so the consequence of that is going to be exile. But that night, this crazy thing happens. And again, this, there's, a, there's a massive history gap, actually, in our, in our history records. Because for some reason, even though Sennacherib did take that city of Lachish that we have all those stone wall reliefs for, he doesn't take Jerusalem. And the reason is this. Um, in uh, chapter 37, verse 36, the angel of Yahweh went out in one night and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Esar Hadon, his son, reigned in his place. Which is crazy. Literally, God shows up. He's like, I don't need your help. I don't need your armies. I don't need your chariots. I don't need your money. He's like, I'm going to show up. He's like, I'm going to do this all by myself. And one night, this crazy disease wipes out 200,000 people in a single night. And that's, cr- that's crazy. And, and you might be like, well, you know, is this like, is this just like is Hebrew propaganda? Like, what, what is this going on? Like, are they, but, but the thing is, is you have to ask the question. If, if it was some other thing, if say there was this battle, why, why doesn't Israel brag about it in their scriptures? I mean, that's a, pre- that's a pretty good brag. To be able to take on essentially like the ancient equivalent of like the U.S. Army Rangers or U.S. Navy se- SEALs, 185,000 of them. And then, why didn't, and then if that's the case, then why didn't they t- take a military campaign and actually just go take over Assyria themselves? That doesn't happen. That's not there in the historical record. All we have is this really strange gap where Sennacherib, he gets to the point of basically being able to take over Jerusalem. He doesn't do it. And the Assyrians are not going to say anything about that because he wants to be able to ad- have to admit that you lost that many men on your campaign. And yet Israel doesn't say that we went and we actually beat them in a, in a battle. So th- it's this crazy story where, where God saves by himself. And that's the first thing that makes him different. Guys, is that we have a God who doesn't actually need our help at all. We have a God who shows up, who saves not because we deserve it, not because um, we've got our lives together, not because we have anything to bring to the table to somehow get him to do it, not because we can promise to do better, but simply because he, he wants to vindicate before Israel and everybody else that he saves all by himself. He's that powerful and he's that good. But the thing is, Hezekiah actually is still unfaithful. And we have this story where um, there's a bunch of, Hezekiah gets sick, he cries to the Lord, the Lord heals him, and then there's a bunch of envoys, diplomats from Babylon that show up, and they're like, hey, we're, we heard God healed you, we want to just say congratulations, and Hezekiah's, oh great, I could pr- potentially get some allies, I'm going to brag and show off all my stuff, all the things that God's blessed me with, all the things that make me powerful, and, and, and really he's flexing his pride. And Isaiah basically says, dude, because you've done this, you need to realize that in a few generations, all of the stuff you just bragged about and showed off to everybody, it's all going to get carried off by the same people you were bragging to, to Babylon. He's like, they're going to take your sons, some of your sons, 
and they're going to make them eunuchs. The sons that you expect to be able to take over your kingdom after you, to have this big, long line to bump up your prestige, they're going to get castrated by the guys you were flexing to. And, and so there's this, and so Israel goes into exile. And Isaiah sees this thing coming. He sees it from far away. And he, he basically tells us in Isaiah um, 53, um, basically how God is going to show up and finally deal with this sin problem and transforming Israel into being the people that they need to be. Isaiah says, he says that essentially there's going to be somebody, or you're going to hear in the future, somebody's going to show up, they're going to have all of these incredible, this incredible good news. Isaiah 52 verse 7 says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Which is crazy to think about, especially if you're in exile. You're in exile, you're under this horrible group of people, you're a, min- you're a religious minority, and everybody thinks you're weird. You don't get opportunities that other people get because you're different. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Um, being mistreated by bosses or coworkers or friends or neighbors. He says that, in fact, you're going to hear somebody come up to you, he's going to say, your God reigns. The, the God who, who made promises to you, to help you, to be there for you, he's going to show up and flex his power. Verse 10 says this, Yahweh has bared his holy arm for the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the saving of our God. And he basically tells you about this person who's going to be this servant. Now, this servant idea is actually also really significant because I I told you about this guy named Abraham a little earlier. Abraham shows up. He has a conversation with God. He asks him to save Sodom, this horrible, wicked city. And one of the things he says to God is, and when he addresses God, he says, he says, says, Lord, your servant is asking for this. And so Abraham actually becomes the first person, this man of faith, who actually sort of sets up this paradigm, this category for this servant figure. Isaiah talks about this guy a a bit earlier. He's going to be this person who God uniquely uses to change all of Israel into being God's servant in a way that's consistent, that's not hypocritical, that's not filled with injustice, that doesn't have tons of idolatry. And so, but there's going to be this one guy who basically is a light who shatters the blur. Okay, He, he creates clarity in the fog. He makes us be able to see the difference between Yahweh and the nations, not just because God saves all by himself, but because God saves in a way that is crazy, especially if you've made an absolute mess of your life and ruined your circumstances. 52 verse 13 says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred. They're going to be so shocked at you because he's going to be so ugly, so brutalized, beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so he will sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which they had, had, had not been told them, they see. And that which they had never heard, they understand. It says, who's believed what he's heard from us? This is too crazy to be believed. <laughs> Who, to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? And at first you're going, oh, that's a metaphor for God himself. 
But then you look at verse 2, it says, for he, who's the he? The he is the arm of Yahweh. That's, that's crazy. So this he, but then you're like, okay, so is this, is this God? Is this a human being? It says he grew up before him just like a young plant. You're like weeding this summer and you're like looking at your driveway and you're trying to work at all these stupid plants and your stonework. And he's this little weed in this like wilderness, desert, horrible situation just popping up. It says he had no form or majesty that we should look in him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by human people. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief who understands the experience of exile, the experience of being mistreated, the experience of having, being abused, of being on the outside. And, and, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. There's this really du- interesting double meaning there in the original language. And one level, it almost seems like it could say as either he's, other people are hiding their faces from this guy because he's so butt ugly, so marred, so unimpressive at all. Or it's almost like he's hiding his face from us, which earlier in Isaiah is actually what's used to describe what God does um, in hiding his face from us. So surely he has carried our griefs. That's the big shocker. Nobody's expecting this. This guy who everybody looks down on, they think he's, he, he's got all these problems because the God's mad at him. And he says, but in fact, it, it's this crazy flip. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him punched, stricken, hit by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our boundary crossing, our, our transgressions. He was crushed because we've twisted everything up in injustice and idolatry. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us wholeness, that brought us peace, that healed us. It's, in fact, it's, it's actually with his wounds that we're healed. And all we like sheep, we've, we've gone all over the place. We've gone astray. We've turned every single one of us to his own way. That's why we're in this exile situation, estranged from God, and everything's gone wrong, and there's still all this injustice and idolatry in the place, even though we've been sent into exile. We haven't learned our lesson. What do you do when <coughs> you're at the point where you've ruined your life because of things that you thought were good? What do you do when your pursuit of justice actually creates abuse you never even thought you could imagine? What do you do when your pursuit of money and prestige and accomplishment and maybe your work scenario and your friend groups, what it does is it alienates people. It makes money, and all these things that you would have wanted with the money feel empty and meaningless. What do you do in that situation? It's one thing, see, it's one thing for the first half of Isaiah, right? Because you're not ruined yet. It's just like it's on the horizon. It's like coming for you. It's bearing down on you. And then God shows up. He saves all by himself. Doesn't need your help. But it's another thing. When you've actually made a mess of everything, and you thought that the things that were going to save, that were things that were going to help, don't. And you're just stuck by yourself. In fact, this servant 
when we thought everything that was wrong with him was because he had done it wrong, it was actually because we had done it wrong. And our injustice and the consequences of that, our idolatry and the consequences of that are sitting on top of him. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, all the people around him, who even considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He was killed. He was punched for the transgression, for the boundary crossing of my people, of us. And then they made his grave with wicked people, with rich, corrupt people in his death, even though he'd done no violence to anyone. There was no deceit in his mouth. And yet this we got right, that it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. And that he actually has put him to grief. But that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, for our guilt, he'll actually see his seed, he'll see his descendants, he'll prolong his days. And the will of Yahweh, his saving will, his intention is to actually save and use our own mess, use our own evil to save us. That will actually flourish and prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he will see, he, he will see that just the thing that he's believed, that there is no, that the blur is a blur. It's not, it's a mirage. It's not reality. Yahweh is different from the nations, not, and the gods of the nations, not just simply because he saves by himself, but because he saves. And he can use your own screw-ups, your own mess, your own ruining of your life to do it. What if God does that? Usually when we think about gods, we think, okay, like, he's like grading on a scale. So bad people get bad things, good people get good things. And if I've screwed my whole life over, it's, it's up to me and my own skill, my own trying to pull myself together to put it back together. And God looks at that, he's like, no. He's like, you don't get any bragging rights in this equation. You need to know that at the end of the day, the only person that you need to fundamentally put your trust in is me. And that's the good news of, of the gospel, guys. He doesn't need your, he doesn't need any of your help to save. And he can use your own messing up of your life to actually do the thing that you need him to do. That's how good Yahweh is. He will, he will wreck your life for your good if you do not listen to him. That's the scary part. That's the scary message of God's, of, of God's message in Isaiah. But he can, not only can he save you without your help, he can actually use this horrible mess that you've made to not only save you, but to save all sorts of other people. Because he put the, the, the consequences for your sin and your evil and your idolatry on Jesus, on this servant. And Isaiah sees that from afar. He sees that from far away. He says, that's the way that you're always going to save that's the way you're always going to clear this whole thing up. He's going to bring us home out of exile. And so, I just think, guys, when we think about this, we have an incredible amount of hope. You God doesn't need you to save you. <laughs> that's really good news. <laughs> Not only that, that he can use the things that you've you feel like you've ruined all these disappointments. Maybe you look at your life and you go, this is not fair. But then you look at it a second time and you go, 
in some ways it's not fair, but in other ways it is fair. I don't know if you've ever looked at your situation and you see, you're like, man, I, I'm in a mess and it's all my fault and I'm terrified of telling anyone. I'm so ashamed of this. You know why he says, you know what, that, I can make a whole new world out of that. He says, because the, 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 the evil and the brokenness that you've created, I put the consequences of that on my son and he shut up. He's like, I, you're, I am so powerful to save that I can send you my salvation in Jesus Christ. You can kill him and I will use your killing him to save you. That's crazy. That's insane. And that's for us. That's for you and for me. And that's, that's sort of, that, I wanted to trace that theme to give you a sense of that's where the light comes in in Isaiah. That's the hope that we have. And so I don't know where you are today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know um, where you might feel shame, where you feel like you're on the brink, you need God to show up, and you've tried everything. And you're starting to wonder, you know, is there really a difference between this Jesus Christianity thing and everything else? Or maybe you're in a situation where you've ruined stuff, where you're sitting in a mess. And at one level, you know that you had a pretty big part to play in it. And you're not sure how things are ever going to get better. I have such good news for you. (laughs) Jesus saves. Jesus saves in those situations. And so I just want to ask you, what, what does response look like for you? If that's actually true, what, how, how does it change the way you look at the situation that you're seeing? I want to just give you a couple minutes, to, or maybe 30 seconds, to just think about that, and then I'm going to pray. And then I just want to ju- just at, encourage you to talk to a friend, talk to um, one of the elders here, one of the leaders here, uh, and just share that. Um, a part of the, a huge part of the freedom of recognizing and inviting God into those sorts of situations is being honest about them with other people. And so I just want to create space for that. Come Holy Spirit. have one request, that we would see your face in these situations that we're thinking about. That your name would be made holy, that you would show up in these situations, that you would save all by yourself. If it's guilt or shame that we're dealing with, that we would see that that's met in Jesus' cross and his resurrection. If there's broken relationships, that you would heal those and that in seeing your, the hope that you offer, that there's redemption there and we can take the next steps. We don't have another option. We spread these things out to you just like Isaiah did or Hezekiah did. And we look to your servant, Jesus, 
And we say, save. We trust you. We believe, help our unbelief. So I just pray that you bless these people in Jesus' name. That we walk away encouraged and hopeful at all that you can do and that you promise to do because of Jesus and what he's done for us and in our place. And it's his name I ask these things. Amen. So be it. Yeah, as I said, I encourage you to chat with a friend, share what's stuck out to you, um, share what's going on, and uh, pray that the Lord blesses you, that you meet him, and that message bounces around in your head and in your experience in this coming week. God bless you guys.